1: Hello, I'm Dr. Seok-joon Kim. I'm the director of the postgraduate research at LRMBC.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Ian Gross. I'm a PhD research student in creative writing, and I'm co-hosting from the Old Brewery podcast along with John.
1: This is uh, our third episode, and we are actually, for the first time, we are meeting together. <laughs> so yeah, it's weird, uh, uh, yeah. very nice to talk to you in person, you know, rather than relying on technology uh, and talking through the, the various topics online and this episode we have a sarina o'donohue uh, who is a second year phd researcher and her research is about exploring narrative representations of autism she graduated uh, from the university of aberdeen with her first class honors in english literature in 2020 And later that year, uh, she began her Ph.D. with the supervision from Professor Timothy Baker and Dr. uh, Jacqueline Rave. Uh, So her passion for championing neurodiversity led her to co-found the Narratives of a Neurodiversity Network, uh, which is a vibrant online community of neurodivergent-led academics and creatives, uh, which was uh, founded in July 2020. She also uh, has been creating and producing videos on autism acceptance for the BBC Social Channel since June 2019. Welcome, Sarina.
2: Hello. Okay, hi, Serena. Um, you're obviously heavily involved in championing and exploring issues around neurodiversity uh, personally and in your academic experience. I just wondered what brought you to this this deep interest you have in in neurodiversity and autism specifically.
0: Um, I guess I wanted to find a way to bring together my two passions. Um, so you know, on the one hand, there's um, newer diversity and, and and championing that, and then on the other, there's literature, and um, it got me thinking that um, you know what's happening in with autism and literature in um, kind of contemporary public, you know, novels and things and, and and other forms of of literature that are being published now. And uh, I came to realize that in literature, disability studies itself is thriving, but there seems to be a focus on physical disability and um, on on the body. Um, It's almost that disability studies is like synonymous with the body. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, I I looked deeper into it and thought, you know, there must be some kind of gap uh, that I could address. And um, then I I realized uh, that the more into my reading that, society has their perceptions are informed on the the fiction that's published rather than the medical stuff so I Mm -hmm. thought well this deserves attention and if you think of Rain Man or the curious incident of the dog in the Nighttime, uh, those two are what uh, disability studies scholar Stuart Murray calls autism events you know they were that that big so I thought you know representation is important and how is it changing how quickly is it changing Um, and you know, why has it not got the attention that it deserves in, in scholarship? So, yeah. right.
2: Cool. So there's a gap in scholarship and public attitudes are mm-hmm. totally shaped really by yeah. by the literature and in the, in the films and the other art forms that are put out there. Yeah. Can you just expand a bit on the, on the links between um, the representation and what you call the environmental aspects of literature in your study? Have you got a few examples of that you can give us?
0: Yeah, um, I have kind of... The way that I deal with environment is kind of in the widest sense of the word. So, um, kind of every angle you look at it, there's kind of some interesting uh, connection. So, if you take it on the most general level, um, in the the UK especially and in the US, um, there's this um, focus in scholarship on what we call the social model of disability, mm-hmm. which is the idea that you know. The, the, the lack of accommodation in societal sort of institutions and mechanisms is responsible for a lot of the disablement that happens. Not to say that, you know, people don't have their own sort of struggles um, within themselves, It's um, but society plays a huge part in um, how people, in, in the quality of people's lives. So environment is actually, you know, the the whole idea of environment underlies the the social model, and um, informs kind of um, how how disability is is conceptualised and, and and managed and everything else.
2: I can see that, but I just wondered how you link that with the the study of the literature that you're researching as part of your PhD. Is it is it the way? The experience of autism and neurodiversity is, is framed by environments in, in the literature or is it something else? Or.
0: Um. So, yeah, there there is that. And the reason I bring that up sort of first is because the other stuff gets really kind of niche and, and, and really complicated. Um, at the moment, I'm looking at post-humanism and, and autism, and I'm looking at terms of relationality. So this is where it becomes obvious that environment is very kind of broad um, in my conception um, and how kind of this idea that autistic people are kind of imprisoned um, you know self-imprisonment and solipsism and things like that and, and, and they don't kind of like relating when actually it's a different form of relation, sometimes it's hyper relation. So I look at kind of first hand accounts by autistic people, you know, and and you know, for example the description of synesthesia yeah. and how that um, translates in their poetry is really quite um is inherently relational, and so I, I, I kind of like to to to, to think about that and, and to, to make to make that point because it's not it's not not common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so sorry. So the environment then is, uh, encompasses human human interaction, the human environment, not just the physical environment.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it's guess I guess it's this idea of you know. We are always products of our environments, we're always kind of affected and affecting what goes on around us, you know, human and, and non-human. Um, but also environment, going back to, to the early kind of easier conception, um, is, is the way that I, I've organised my, my chapters of my thesis. Um, and so the first chapter is the body and it looks at, at those kinds of things, you know, how bodies are in space and how they transform space and how they are transformed by space. Um, the second is the home. So autism is often framed as a family crisis. Ever since the happened in the 1960s, um, parents kind of um, found themselves living with their, their autistic children for the first time and having to find ways to, to to manage it and to help their children and to help themselves. And this is where kind of the, the most common charities, including the National Autist, Autistic Society in the UK, it was set up by parents. So autism is always seen as a, a domestic kind of affair. And that's often framed in tragic terms. Um, and a lot of the narratives I look at kind of challenge that.
1: Um, and think
2: it comes from the the parents or the family experience rather than from the yeah. the individual with the, with the autism or the neurodiversity yes. themselves.
0: So in disability studies, we have this kind of term called uh, narrative prosthesis. And it's the idea that disabled people exist as kind of plot devices for exploring, mm. for example, the breakdown of a marriage or, you know, what it's like to parent somebody who's quote unquote different instead of actually looking at giving the autistic character agency, they're often at the center of the narrative, but have absolutely no agency. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's those kinds of things that are useful to study within the context of the home. Mm. And then we've got the community, um, which I haven't actually done much work on yet, um, but I do look at maybe a bit more about the social model um, and kind of what comes of that. And then there's um, non-human environments and kind of the, the natural sort of world. Um, and I'll look at, at memoirs in that chapter. There's so many memoirs at the moment being published by autistic people, including kind of um, Chris Packham, mm-hmm. Dara McCarnity, um Greta Thunberg, Temple Grandin, Don Prince Hughes. There's a lot of um, these ideas of, you know, animals and non-human environments and interaction and um, but that's often framed in dehumanizing terms you've got to be careful not to say oh autistic people find it easier to interact with animals you know it's so again it's, yeah. it's 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 addressing and challenging those kinds of ideas and then finally I've got um sort of science fiction so um I don't know if anybody heard of the the spectrum 10k um
2: I was reading about that on one of the one of the uh, sort of co-founders of your uh, Narratives of Neurodiversity Network, mm-hmm. uh, David Hartley, and yeah. he, he talks about the, the 10K, the Spectrum 10K people. It sounds really disturbing, sort of troubling yeah. sounding. Can you tell us a bit more about that as well?
0: So, yeah. So, I mean, I actually read very little into it, for, as a as an act of resistance almost <laughs> and of self-care but from what I understand is uh, Simon Baron Cohen which uh, was the guy who came up with theory of mind which is suggests that autistic people lack empathy and um, he kind of wants I think 10,000 examples uh, DNA samples uh, from autistic people mm. um, and I think that the overall goal is to eliminate um, the condition and so you see a lot of this eugenicist sort of Talk or the idea that those who are—I um, I think that the, the, the biggest worry against eliminating autism is not you know the, the clear ethical issues it poses, but the fact that we might um, we might not then get the, the 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 superhuman autistics, you know, the ones that are kind of seen as the savants, the zero point six percent. So science fiction is really Kind of fruitful field to it's look at a prescient
2: issue. genre, isn't it? Yeah,
0: exactly. So you have a lot of um, autistic writers and people writing about autism in sort of the future where it is cured, or you know those kinds of themes. Um, so
2: you can imagine historians looking back if that was to go ahead and that became a something that uh, that was accepted by society. You can imagine historians looking back and being aghast at, at what was going on, can't you? It's uh, yeah it's incredible really yeah
1: yeah I think that uh so I was wondering you know when when your research on the autism which uh in a sense is a very personal uh personal topic and the literature and the I guess when you study your research and combining these two ideas together and then finding some uh, some aspects of how autism is represented in literature, so when you're thinking about it, perhaps there must have been you know one or two uh, the the pieces in the literature that you you recognize oh there is a there is an issue that you i want to kind of uh, you know start looking into can you give us uh, some uh maybe some example of uh, one or two ho- hopefully widely well known you know the literature they that, uh, that got you started is, is there any anything you can talk about
0: um, so I think, like, the the less sort of progressive, to put it lightly, examples, um, they're, they, they still kind of come quite commonly. Like, uh, recently we have a, Sia's short film called Music, um, and there was a huge kind of up, upheaval about that, and that was only a few months ago, um, where, you know, there was um, a neurotypical actress playing uh, an autistic character, and, you know, they hadn't consulted with any of the... Um, with with any kind of autistic people themselves and they used a charity that most autistic people oppose because they are for curing autism and um it was all just very kind of not not exactly presented in a way that most autistic people would would kind of agree with and i'm saying this from the discourses i've read um and i guess like there's the ones that aren't harmful in themselves like um i the, the 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 most common the the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime Mark Haddon it's not that that in itself is offensive but what happens is a very kind of particularized view of autism is um, promoted at the expense of all other autism narratives and so th- there's a popular saying in in the autism community which is if if you've met An autistic person you've met one autistic person, you know And that kind of doesn't come across so much when a really popular narrative gets published and it kind of occludes all the other
2: ones ones.
0: But having said that since around 2018 and I mean this is kind of where I pinpoint it and I am just seeing book after book after book published that are just extremely kind of, autism isn't even the main thing about it. A lot of them are, are written by, by women. A lot of them um, are written kind of, you know, that they're, they're very kind of, they're interesting but they're not interesting because they include autism. That's not the main point of them. Um, so like, I'm thinking just recently there's, um, the Helen Huang, there's um, Michelle Galen, there's uh, Katia Bailen, there's um, who else, uh, Madeleine Ryan, you know these authors are coming sort of that these publications are coming faster than mm-hmm. I can read them. And it's just absolutely wonderful. So there is such a sea change and that has to be accounted for. So that's kind of what I, I hope I'm doing.
1: Yeah. Why, uh, so why do you think that is the case? That, so why there is a, 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 certain, a certain surge, if you will, like, a, you know, the, the, the new or maybe a renewed understanding or maybe renewed a representation of autism, perhaps by uh, the people who have autistic uh, uh, elements in their life?
0: yeah I, I like to think that society itself is becoming more progressive um people whose narratives have been silenced um up until now were kind of all coming forward and and telling their stories and I think part of it is a wider kind of culture of that you know you see it on the TV and in adverts you know um more and more representation like I think it's um on my social media pages, I think it's it's maybe not Google, but it's something similar where you know there's um, the, the, a kid with with Down syndrome and she's just with her mum, and you know that's it just happens. And then there's the Changing Faces campaign with um, after the James Bond film came out, um, the Changing Faces campaign um, did a, a kind of their own advert, and it was people with kind of facial, visible facial differences, um, not acting as villains, but you know, posing as the protagonists.
2: It's really obvious in the Bond franchise, isn't it? The the disfigured villain. Exactly,
0: yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I think it's happening in in lots of different kind of areas of disability studies and further afield. Um, And I think uh, in autism specifically, um, I'll probably get to this uh, later, but the internet was kind of the main place where autistic people have always gathered, have always mobilized. And so if you think about it in kind of um, in his- historical terms, it wasn't that long ago. You know, the first um, autistic led listserv was in the 1990s, late 90s or early early 90s. And so it's really, It kind of, it does take a long time for things to change and that was the seeds of it. And I like to think now, sort of 30 years on, we're really, really getting into it now. It's gaining momentum in other areas of publications and and culture and things like that. Having said that, the internet still remains kind of the main place for um, autistic people to gather and publish their narratives kind of unofficially and things like that.
1: Uh, it got me curious. Uh, you explained to us uh, about uh, your chapter plan. Uh, the the first chapter has to do with the body and follows on with the home, mm-hmm. and then community, and then the, uh, this idea of the uh, the posthuman, uh, where uh, you uh, you particularly um, focused on the memoirs, mm-hmm. and then that somewhat lead, leads to sci-fi. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so I felt like the sci-fi element, on the one hand, you know, it may, of course, it may have to do with the post-human. On the one hand, but it seems like a kind of a bit of a jump, and also the sci-fi uh, element seems to be kind of uh, put in the latter part mm-hmm. of your uh, the your destination as as it currently stands. Uh, I wonder why this kind of structure. Do do you see that sci-fi is a kind of a, a, one of the genres where a you or maybe uh, there is a possibility of a rewrite or uh, renew the represent the existing representation of the the neuro neurodiversity in in a more free free form. What do you see the the possibilities in sci-fi, Zhang?
0: Yeah, I think I think sci-fi is the the most kind of. Out there, of 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 the 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 top the subject areas that I'm focusing on within neurodiversity, um, I think that there's um, a lot of kind of it's it's maybe a good way to to tie in um, what what the the previous stuff in in the thesis looks at because um, especially with the posthumanist stuff at the beginning, um, it would be nice to kind of return to that in the sci-fi thing, because, I mean, with post-humanism, a lot of people just see it as um, not in the body, but, you know, the, the mind being kind of um, a computer or something to process. Well, there's interesting parallels between that and um, in sci-fi, um, autistic people, and, and often not in sci-fi, they are often Exclusively autistic people are often com- uh, equated with uh, computers and processing machines, you know, this kind of idea that they're, they're unfeeling un- and yes, they're just yes. good at numbers yeah. and nothing else. Yeah,
1: somehow uh, it reminds me of the, the Star of data. Yeah. You know, the, that some quality seems to be, you know, if you, if, if he were a human being, mm-hmm. maybe some quality of it, the character, some characters of him may be considered autistic in a way, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a yeah. very strange, interesting one
0: yeah so it's um so yeah i mean like i haven't actually started the the sci-fi stuff yet but i have um The the way that I, what I call it in my chapter and in all my proposals and stuff is is, is the idea of imagined spaces, you know? So if you've got physical spaces that, you know, people frequent day to day, like the home or like, you know, natural environments, the imagined spaces does kind of take these ideas to the very furthest they can go. And I feel like with sci-fi, there's a lot of kind of reductive representations of, you know, for example, the autist as automaton, which, yeah.
2: um, which is- Are there any, I'm sorry, are there any, uh, I mean, I've read a little bit of sci-fi and I love sci-fi films mm-hmm. and I just wondered if there are any actual representations of uh, autistic people in sci-fi or whether it's just the way society reads in to some of the traits that some um, characters in sci-fi might have, some, you know, AI robots and things like that.
0: There, there are definitely, um, I know, so I'm not, I like sci-fi, um, I'm not kind of a sci-fi buff um, yet, I have, I have a while to go, um, I will be reading my sci-fi but I think um, with, I, I know that a lot of characters that you know weren't sort of or, or not explicitly written as autistic have been read as autistic in sci-fi, um, like Dave Dave Hartley um who who is one of the co-founders of the NNN he did his thesis on representations of autism he looked at Blade Runner so mm. so he would be a good one to to, to ask actually but um yeah, actually
1: I actually thought about the Blade Runner as yeah. well
0: yes yeah, yeah so so there is that but there's also there are named representations of autism as well like um Daniel Key's um, Flowers for Algernon, um, and also we've got the um, Elizabeth Moon's Speed of Dark where A Cure for Autism is actually available, Um, that's been read kind of in in two ways, I'm I'm not big on it, Um, and then there's um, other sci-fi authors. who are autistic, and they have explicitly sort of expressed their love for sci-fi as being a place where they can actually kind of explore alternative possibilities and societies that are more accepting. So the two that come to mind are uh, Rivers, Rivers Solomon and Dora, Dora Raymaker. Um, but yeah, so so autism in sci-fi, there is is a lot there. Um, it is the kind of. Part of my chapter because it's last that I've I've thought least about I will say but I know that there is a lot to be discovered there and I'm very excited to to get into it.
2: Do you think it will tie up a lot of those other aspects that that John recapped yeah. on the the home and the body and the family?
1: Yeah. So about that, I was just thinking about this. So why sci-fi? You know, the uh, as it is as it, as uh, the, your current research stands. Why Sarina thinks Things uh, things of sci-fi. Uh, there's a kind of one of the last chapters, and I thought that maybe in sci-fi, uh, as you mentioned, imagine space. Actually, you are, you can imagine different environments, mm-hmm. and you talked about the the war environment is really important in this in this representation of the the autistic experience. And if you are kind of positioning, of course, you can imagine space in in. in whichever mm-hmm. error you know you always have to imagine but then if you are, if you were to imagine us at a certain place like a 20th century or 21st century the current one or even going back to like 18th or 17th century you are you are limited mm-hmm. by the human structure or you know co- you know conceptions about the environments so that you have to navigate through it uh sci-fi yes you have you still have to but then there are a lot more freedom in terms of however you can imagine environments. So yeah. they may they may have something to do with it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think like as an aside, um, when you're talking about earlier eras, it's hard to talk about earlier literature when diagnoses didn't exist. Like I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, I'm not somebody who's qualified to say whether certain people are autistic, aren't autistic, who, who are no longer here, or who are here for that matter. Um, and a lot of people feel the same, there's there's mixed opinions. But I feel like with, with sci-fi then you can, it's kind of easier to, to imagine the future. It might even be the way that diagnosis is done. It might even be that diagnosis isn't needed anymore, you know, but, because but yeah. Because
2: society is adapted to people yeah. with autism rather than people with autism having to adapt to the society.
0: Yeah, so it's just such fruitful ground and I can see why you know, authors would take that as, um, that as their setting.
2: Um, before we go on to the narratives of neurodiversity network then to talk about that, I just wanted to come back to um, your discussion about environments and social environments mm-hmm. and how you felt um, that related to your own experience in, uni- in the university environment and how, and how universities approach it today uh, in comparison to the past perhaps.
0: Yeah, so I guess like everybody, most people doing a PhD, myself included, think about not just the academic side of things, but the practice, you know, even even those of us that don't end up staying in academia might well do some teaching and interact with students and other members of staff. And um, so I am interested in kind of not just the, the theoretical and academic side of things, but how to make, you know, universities and institutions more sort of aware and more accepting of lots of different types of of neurological difference. So I think, um, so I've kind of, I've seen sort of both the good and the bad side. I was at a previous university where I had to transfer here for my fourth year and…
2: That's that's a big upheaval, isn't it? At, At that point in your studies.
1: Yeah, yeah, the fourth year, <laughs> the <Yeah>. final year.
0: <laughs> it was completely unexpected. Um, it was just that the the, the accommodations they, they, they wouldn't stick to. Um, I think it was as if they didn't believe that I was autistic, mm. um, or they just I don't know. But I had to I had to come here. It was very last minute. I'm from here, so that's why I chose here. And um, well, I didn't choose, but <laughs> I came here and. Uh, I remember going into my first class and thinking, "I will get my head done, and I will leave, and that will be it you know i 'm sick of this environment i 'm sick of you know the, the way that that they treat anybody who has different methods of learning so I got there and I did the first class and I was trying not to be you know kind of involved and and, and taking part, but i couldn 't help it. The person that I met was great he 's now my supervisor and um, very soon uh, immediately i Began sort of thriving, completely thriving, doing really, really well. Not only academically but socially, and I felt like I had a place. And
2: can you tell us what what the difference was? What 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 made it a more welcoming or accommodating environment?
0: Yeah. So, like for for the first university I was at, it was kind of like I don't know. It seemed to be a culture thing where they didn't do. Um, if you had they, they didn't really do things that would benefit students generally if you had some if you had a special request They would sometimes do it. Um. so for example uh, For me, it was as easy as simple as getting uh, materials early. So um because of my autism, but also because of my um my other health problems. I like to have the opportunity in the holidays when I was an undergrad to do the reading then. Mm -hmm. So just the reading lists, for example, is what, what I would ask for. And they didn't provide the reading list for uh, one course and then so I put all of my effort into the other course I got back and it, I found out that they'd enrolled me in the wrong course so I had done none of the work and um, they were basically just refusing to give me you know any sort of leeway for that even though I'd done work for the other course so it was just things like that and also just not having quiet spaces in the library being put in kind of cupboards instead of you know designated spaces um, and things like that and then when, and, and I had a lot of um, you know, notes on my disability services file saying, you know, she must be given this early and, you know, Serena must uh, be allowed to get up and, you know, um, leave if if, if she gets overwhelmed and things like that. And then when I came to Aberdeen, I told my supervisor, I said, you know, I'm not yet registered with the disability service, but these are the, the issues I have. And he said, no problem. And it turned out that it really wasn't a problem. Um, So things like, um, he did this scheme where it was like, uh, you had three days extension. It was called the, the soft deadline. It was like a pilot scheme. And you would have three days if you suffered from any type of kind of mental health issue or disability or just any, any problem. You wouldn't have to go and make a case for yourself. You would just get those discrete kind of three days. Um, another time, I, I, I find it very, very difficult to work with other students because of, um, how early I begin things you know I wouldn't expect anybody to begin that early said that to him and instead of him saying well you've got to take it up with this person and then you have to go here and write your case down he said yeah no problem and we'll come up with something else and not only did he say that to me he said it to the whole class so it's it's this culture thing you know
2: so it's just a flexible approach to teaching and learning which
0: and it's often just the smallest things and it doesn't
2: single anybody out
0: exactly and that's exactly it you know to my my hope is to to, to kind of nurture an environment where it's not like, oh, we, we must be very accommodating for any student that come to us, but instead say, OK, what can we do as a whole department mm-hmm. to make sure? Because I think, yeah, sure, autistic students with autism diagnoses are kind of vulnerable to maybe... You know, not getting sort of the equal treatment and things like that. But it's 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 often the people without the diagnosis that that are the worst off. Or on top of that, people who don't even know that they might be mm-hmm. neurodivergent. Those are the people that we also need to help. Um, and that's the only thing that can be done there is is a culture change.
1: Is there anything that you felt that? Um you know that either you uh, yourself have felt or maybe you you ident you identify to recognize that there's something perhaps lacking in Epidine or something that you that uh, you wish that it could be even uh, we have done further or uh, more
0: i mean i I've been very very lucky here um it sounds like if it sounds utopian it's only because I've had um very few uh, in-person experiences here. Like I did my my fourth year here, I only had two members of staff working with me. Um, And then when I went to do COVID, that one of those members of staff is now my supervisor. So I, and then the other one, um, Jackie Ravi, she's an autism specialist. So I have been very lucky in that I haven't come kind of Face to face with any difficulties myself. However, I have heard from other people um, that you know that things can be quite um, that that things can be quite difficult in in other areas. So you know, there's there's uh, one person I heard of, um, and they were saying in their department um, there seems to be kind of this disconnect between all the members of staff, mm-hmm. um, and they they don't have the same kind of um, ethos or approach to to um, issuing work and things like that, they kind of take their own liberties, mm-hmm. um, and and members of staff have said this as well. And so I do recognise that there are problems, um, and I'm lucky enough to to have not gone through them myself. But I I I don't think you know, I don't think that we'll we'll be done for a long mm-hmm. time yet.
1: So I think I think that the 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 fortunate environment that you uh, you find yourself with the, your supervisors and your two supervisors. I think that uh, of course uh, in one sense, in one sense, those are kind of personal com- commitment by themselves. but uh, I think some of the elements could be uh, implemented from top down, so that you know as you just mentioned, maybe uh, some other uh, people or uh, students are struggling because not exactly the exact uh, environment that you you were you know you were enjoying, but similar elements could be implemented. And as a, some kind of policy from top down, top down, so that uh, more or less a. Uh you know, there are other occasions where uh, some departments or some schools are doing really well, but other school doing really not so well. So that mean that may mean that it's got to be it's got to have some kind of a course, you know, course, school kind of discussion or even higher up. Like yeah, it's going to be central business. to university exactly. policy and like a holistic approach. Yeah. You know? Exactly right. So some good uh, you know good uh, good practice being shared. Uh, between departments, between schools, so that that could be kind of measured and then implemented as as kind of policy.
0: Yeah, and and, and that, I mean, I'm well aware that that's kind of not happening. I mean, there's um, recently a a kind of new approach to deadlines that are very strict and very rigid. And, you know, there's um, sort of, you know, just just kind of practices that like even just the the no detriment for example um i'm not saying that i have a you know a a serious stance on that i wasn't kind of involved in it but i look i look at the i looked at the students Mm -hmm. and i thought you know if that was me in my worst time at university that would have finished me you Mm know um but in aberdeen when i was doing well in my fourth year i would have coped but in other times Mm -hmm you know, so, so I do look in and I do feel like the a lot of these policies that, that come from the, the, the high up, um, they kind of serve to they, they affect the effect that the students who are struggling the most and, you know, you should never assume that it's their, you know, it's because of laziness or it's their fault, uh, their own fault and things like that, you know,
2: it's just because it's um, yeah. the whole thing set up on a traditional model of yeah. mm. of, of education, isn't
1: it? Yeah, t- uh, t- uh, this, is, uh, this is really important and we need to talk about this and uh, often and, and, and more openly. You know, the, as we all know that this is right now is a transitional time mm-hmm. and uh, for the last uh, eight, eight, eighteen months or even or almost two years long, the university uh, had implemented kind of this temporary, no detrimental policies and along with, along with it uh, other kind of measures implemented as a kind of ad hoc. And now uh, uh, the, the university is trying to recognize that elements is a temporary, so we are trying to kind of clock back and going back to the so-called normal. But we all know that there is no, there is no normal right now. It's, we, are ne- we are never going to be, a, you know.
2: <laughs> also, some of the things that weren't normal were, were, were positive. You know, there were mm-hmm. some things that were, were positive and perhaps, uh, it, well, in all areas of life, but the university should look to cherry pick some of the things they implemented and, and yeah. say, well, this was working quite well, so why don't we keep an element of that? And But we're getting sidetracked now. I think oh, yes, yes. But, um, but this is you, Maybe you could start up like a, a cross-university forum, but you, you, you're pretty busy already, aren't you, <laughs> Serena You've got so much on the go.
1: Yeah, uh, about that, the, the, uh, while I was listening to uh, your um, uh, your experience there from another uh, university and then having had some difficulty moving uh, to Aberdeen, isn't that about the right time? Is it like 2019, 2018, 2019 kind
0: of? Thing? Yeah, so it was, um, the, the the transfer um, happened, it became very clear that there was, um, that, that 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 they didn't plan to, mm. to help me. And it was a kind of last straw thing, mm. uh, which meant that it was like, I think university was to begin again in, sort of three days time um, and we realized, nah, I can't go back there. Mm -hmm. So I actually ended up having to take the year because I couldn't enroll, you know, immediately. So um, yeah, so I I, I left in, I left that place in 2018, in September, 2018. Mm -hmm. And then I came to Aberdeen, uh, the term 2019.
1: That's a uh, uh, that's interesting and maybe this is a uh, uh, this coincidental. But when I when I was looking at your bio, you started working with a BBC social channel in 2019, and then 2020 you co-founded this uh, you know uh, what's it called the neurodiversity uh, network, isn't it? Uh,
0: yeah, narratives of neurodiversity. Uh, network. Yeah,
1: narratives of neurodiversity. So the, <laughs>
0: it's a bit of a tongue twister. We <laughs> just a, we, we <laughs> usually just call it N and N.
1: <laughs> okay, NNN. and N. N, 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 N. 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 So, so it seems like uh, uh, maybe I'm you know I'm 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 stretching a little bit, uh, but it seems like you find a place that you feel very comfortable uh, in uh, both your personal life but also you know, in your academic life, mm-hmm. and then you uh, kind of regain your energy to not only do your own work but also okay uh, how how else I can you know link up with other people and start talking about this more publicly publicly.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think when you've had the the kind of hardships that, you know, of, of, of being, you know, the, the discrimination that, that kind of you go through and the impact that has on your mental health, like for me, certainly the only way in that year off that I could kind of come to terms with it was to, 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 to be um, active about it, to write about it and to kind of spread awareness because when you get when I was doing those things I thought to myself you know if one person could understand a bit better then that really has a huge effect maybe even not on the individual but on somebody that they know and you know things spread that way so I think that between having the year out and coming to terms with what had just happened you know I put I worked really hard to, to get into that university and I tried to build a life for myself there and it just I just watched it kind of crumble through no fault of my own and i thought if it, and 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 i am uh, fortunate to come from a very supportive family and a family who has um who's who's able to help me um you know there was a place for me at home for example when i moved back and they also helped with um the whole transition um all my siblings and my parents if i didn't have that you know or if you know if 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 if, if i or even if i came from um, you know, a family with, you know, less support financially, emotionally, I definitely wouldn't have made it. There's no question about it. I wouldn't have transferred. I would have dropped out and become a statistic. And so I thought to myself, I must use not only my hardships, but also my privilege and my, you know, the, the, the things that I have that I am fortunate to have to share my narrative to maybe help somebody else. And I mean, that the reception from... The videos for BBC, the social example, for example, like, I get messages every time a video comes out, you know, there's a few people coming to me and saying, you know what, that really changed things for me, or I didn't realise or thank you. And that makes it it worth it, you know, <laughs> you
2: know it doesn't break you makes you right? Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about the videos? What what sort of content you you put out?
0: Um, so yeah, I mean, before I started the videos, there was a brief kind of stint where I did columns for my my previous university magazine. So I got my diagnosis um, of autism going into my third year because I was... Um,
2: oh, so that late, I didn't...
0: Yeah, I mean, it was brought up to me much earlier. But I, I got the diagnosis in order to access the provisions and things like that. That obviously backfired. Um, it didn't, you know, the, the, the provisions didn't... Um, proved to actually have any kind of weight to them. But um, after I got my diagnosis, I thought, right, okay, I'll write. Um, So it was, I wrote some columns, uh, titled collectively um, Neurodiversity at University. And um, yeah, I did them. And then um, I decided that, you know, I would like to do more. So I was watching a video for The Social and somebody had, was explaining what it's like to be autistic, but it was very, it was, it was a, a wonderful video, um, really informative. Um, but it it kind of showed sort of the conventional sort of um, representat- uh, presentations that are often associated with with guys. So so women and non-binary people um, are kind of underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So I just I just messaged them and said, hey. That's a great video, but there are other perspectives too. And they said, "Well, well, why don't you come in and, and, and tell us about it?" And I mm. said, "Sure." And they've been absolutely wonderful. Um, I've met great people through them, and it's led to other opportunities. Um, but yeah, the videos are about just random kind of topics, the same as my column. I'll kind of choose a choose a topic. Like you know, I did one on on relationships and dating. I did another on um, the the sunflower lanyards. Um, which, you know, have kind of been hijacked now um, from the original purpose, which was to indicate invisible disability, which isn't really their purpose anymore. But I did one on that. Yeah. Um, I've done one on kind of anxiety when it comes to studying. Um, I've done one on meltdowns, sensory overload. Um, so, yeah, if I've got something that kind of I want to share. I'll just get in touch with them and say, "Hey, I want to want to share this," and they'll say, "Well, we'll make it happen for you." So they're yeah, it's 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 a great great, great. thing. Tomorrow. And so,
2: do you just talk off the cuff uh, on the video, or do you pre- so kind of prepare something and and.
0: I'm somebody who definitely prepares the okay. script, um, and I stick to it. What the, I mean, when when they kind of. Well,
1: you currently you are not. Uh, you're, you don't ever. You don't say. I don't say any script right now. No, exactly. I know. I
0: know. I just, <laughs> God, I would be I, I, nervous looking back, but <laughs> listening back. But um, yeah, I. What I so. When they got back to me and said, after I'd said about the the, the video that was good, but it didn't re- uh, reflect kind of my experience and experience I'd heard of from other people, they said, yeah, come and join us. And I thought, oh, no, what have I got myself into? Because I had no video experience, no recording experience. Um, but actually, you can do it on your phone. You can use the iMovie yeah. app and you can do lots of cutting. And so what I, what I do is... Um, I kind of cram into my mind as much as I can remember <laughs> from the script. I speak it, and then I stop the video, and then I remember some more, and then I add them all together. <laughs>
1: <Splace> it together, <laughs> yeah, it's great. So this technology is really helping you to kind of uh, you know to share your thoughts and you know through this channel. And uh, speaking of technology, it, I recognize that your uh, your network NNN or ne- the narratives of a neurodiversity. Uh, network mm-hmm. yes and uh, which started in July 2020 which is right in the middle of the uh, the pandemic mm-hmm. so I assume that uh, this network uh, probably have, uh, you, you, you you could you had to co-found this network through uh, online only right mm-hmm. so and then all majority of the activities until now I guess they're still uh, through online. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. So, could you tell us a little bit about the, how how you you started working towards this the the, the founding of the network and how what kind of activities that do you organise?
0: So, um, just as I was beginning my PhD or before I began my PhD, I was lucky. I had contact with my supervisor because I, I knew him, so we we knew very early on that that this is what I plan to do. And he said, you know, I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet from. Uh, Dr. Anna Stenning, who's the one of the co-founders um, and she's She's looking to... She, she,
1: oh, sorry, she's based in...
0: She's based in Leeds. Okay. So, um, yeah, so so quite a while away. And she was looking to set something up. And, and the first thing my supervisor said was, it it may well come of nothing. These things often, you know, nothing often comes of it. And I said, you know, Anna Stenning, oh, God, I've, I've read her work. You know, this, mm-hmm. is, this is exciting. So <laughs> I got in touch with her. Uh, when, when you work in, in autism studies, um, this is one of the exciting things about it. Because it's so small, you actually... Connect with a lot of people who you really admire mm. and respect. Whereas if you were working and say Shakespeare, you might never Forget meet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your heroes, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, I got in touch with her and um, another person called uh, Gareth, Doctor Gareth Farmer. He works in the University of Bedfordshire, I think. Um, and we we kind of we we all got together and we thought, right, we'll do a list serve. So we were back to the very first, um, this is a neurodiversity network, so it's not just autism, it's all forms of uh, neurodivergence, but um, we were back to kind of the the roots of the the listserv in the 1990s, and it was all very, it was done through JISC mail, so it looked very 1990s, (laughs) and then we got kind of some people interested, they were just, what we would do through the listserv was we would discuss kind of book recommendations or You know, we would discuss experiences in academia, or you know, we've got teachers, we've got students, we've got people who, you know, just have kind of jobs that have nothing to do with neurodiversity. We've got all all types of people, but 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 I think we did. um, I think we did a group, a a, a book group kind of thing meeting, and we decided after that we'll recruit some more people, and so we recruited a few more. and we came up with a, a Discord channel. It was um, Dr. David Hartley that, that, that put us all on Discord. He's um, one of the members now, uh, one of the founders now alongside uh, Louis, Dr. Louise Cretchen from Glasgow. David's in Manchester and Louise is in Glasgow. So we're all kind of very, um, varied sort of areas in the UK. And we put together the Discord, so it's got kind of different channels on it. So some of some of it's for academic discussions and thoughts, others is for creative writing. We've got sort of a social channel. We've got recommendations, so people will post links to, like, talks and lectures yeah. and, you know, author appearances and stuff like that. And... Um, it's not so much organi- organized around what we call the salons, which are um, basically, they're not just reading groups, but they're, you know, listening groups. So we might do a podcast or watching groups or any type of media. The, the kind of less conventional, the better. And we'll, we'll discuss kind of our, our piece of, of, of reading or watching or listening every, um, I think it's just like, um, I don't think we've got exact sort of uh, time for it, but it's like once every two months or so. And then we've also got um, this newer one, which one of our members came up with, which is academic discussions. So we also do Zooms and talk about, you know, theory and ideas. And then we've got our creative writing sessions. So we're all kind of, but yeah, it's all online. Um,
2: That's quite cool. You've got academic symposiums in a way out, out with the academy, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's good that it's, it's, it's got life beyond
0: yeah. and I think the I th- institutes. I think that, that that is why one of the the ways, uh, one of the few positives that COVID had, um, I think with COVID, people were beginning to work this way anyway. And as I've mentioned, with with um, with autistic communities and probably other neurodivergent communities, we've always done stuff online. Um, and then on top of that, like because neurodiversity in disability studies is basically non-existent in in literature. There really are. You could probably count on your hands how many people within the academies Mm. are working on it. We have all just found each other and we're all working together um, and, and I feel really close to these people, you know, they're my friends. So it's, it, it's wonderful to have been able to branch out like that and make those connections. And things have come of it, you know, um, Anna um, Anna Stenning had done this amazing festival um, called the International, or, sorry, Interdisciplinary Autism Research Festival, the IARF. And I presented at that alongside, Where you know. Was it? Pardon? When was it? Oh, it was in May. Um, May of this year. Was that an year?
2: online yeah, event? Yeah, all
0: online. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the the names that were there, you know, so so there are people that have come up with these pioneering theories that our you know our discipline now relies on. They were speaking, and then off the back of that, we, you know, I'm I'm now in in, in touch with, for example. Um, one 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 writer called Joanne Limberg, who's really kind of she, she writes on autism and, and she's very well known in that area. She attended one of our salons and we and 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 we were reading her book for it and she came and spoke and James McGrath, who's a poet and a critic, um, he'd come to another one. So it's been just wonderful. Yeah, it's probably one of the highlights of of um, this past year for me, let alone my my academic
1: research. How many members uh, do you think that, that the NNN? Uh, might currently have
0: so like actively so this is the people that are posting all the time it's probably about 25 very active members but we've got kind of well over 100 um from all different areas and again people what People that we admired, you know, people who seem very far away from us. You know, their name will pop up, and we'll think, "Oh my God, we've made it!" (laughs) So yeah.
2: I can see your face lighting up when you're talking about this. (laughs) So it just—it's obviously sort of, you know, it's for want of a better expression because it's—it's a bit of an annoying expression. But you found your tribe, you know. Mm -hmm, Definitely.
1: So I guess the the, these NNN uh, activities, so the. Uh, definitely, those activities will feed, uh, will uh, you know, will be fed back to your own research, mm-hmm. and how how do you see that happening?
0: Um, so I think a lot of it is just in the casual sort of day to day. So like if I so say if I was up you know studying at the moment and I kind of hit a, a roadblock or something, mm-hmm. I would the first thing I would do is I would go to. To to the the discord channel if it was to do with like the autism side of things if it was to do to with the the form or maybe the wider theories It would of course be my supervisor, but if it was the autism stuff, it would be Recommendations and I would get I would get recommendations. I would get, you know Probably one or two people saying, you know, do you want to zoom and have a talk about it? You know, so it's been very Especially at the beginning, when I'm sure um, both of you having done PhDs, it's very overwhelming at the Mm -hmm. beginning because you know that even if you sat and read everything that there is that's relevant to you, you still wouldn't get through it all because it just keeps coming. So it was really, really useful to to have people who were, well, they were great role models, really, because they were kind of a bit further along than me. A lot of them had just finished their PhDs, like... You know, had been working for for a year or two after their PhDs, so I did. I I do kind of see them as like supplementary sort of supervisors. I definitely see them as colleagues. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
2: like a peer support network. That's yeah. It's quite difficult to establish that when
1: you start yeah. a PhD, especially during the, the COVID. So this network is not only about the uh, not only about there's um, the uh, literal uh, the people who are who are doing uh, research on the lit- uh, literature, but anyone can join, mm-hmm. uh, isn't it?
0: Yeah, anyone. And and that can be like, I think it's really exciting when we have undergraduates join because that indicates to us that, well, people are thinking about it much earlier now. I mean, an undergraduate, teaching undergraduates about neurodiversity studies is unheard of, but teaching them about disability studies is is normal. It's it, it's something that happens. If you ask most graduates in English lit, most undergrads, they will say, yeah, yeah, we've been taught about disability studies. So it, it's very exciting. It's often because of my colleagues and you know leads and things like that who have been who have been alerting people to it. But we are getting members who are much um, earlier on in their academic careers. But we also have non-academics um, people who you know, have who either, you know, don't have jobs or who work in jobs that have nothing to do with with neurodiversity. We have um, um, people who are interested in creative writing, but maybe not necessarily the academic side of things. We have people who just want to join in with the social stuff and contribute every once in a while. And um, we do like the idea that we, we do like to think that we're kind of non-hierarchical and collaborative, and if somebody's got an idea, they don't really need to come to us and say, "Could you make this happen for us?" We would say, "That sounds great. Do it. Would you like any help?" Um, so yeah, it's, it's just I, I do like the kind of multiple sort of functions of it, and I think that, that that's possible now that we've got you know a few sort of uh, sort of founding members.
2: Yeah, I was just going to ask for our listeners where where we can check out um, the network, the Narratives of Neurodiversity Network, uh, if they want to investigate that, and also uh, where exactly we can find your, your videos on the BBC social channel, if you can... I know we'll post the links up, but yeah. perhaps if you can just mention it just now, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it would be more helpful if either my first or second name were easy to spell.
2: <laughs> it's easy, it's <laughs> easier know. than mine. That's why.
0: Why is my name not just John Smith? But it's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if, if if you Google my name, Serena O'Donhue and just BBC the the social, it'll come up. Um, and. Uh, with the the Narratives and Neurodiversity Network, the easiest way to do that is to find the Twitter handle, I think it's NeuroNarratives, and then the link in our bio, there's a Discord channel, but even if you're not keen for signing up on Discord and getting involved with kind of the the sort of discussions uh, on there, and you just want to come to the meetings and stuff, um, you can just find all of the updates and things on Twitter, so yeah, it's... um, we, we, we try to, to kind of keep the calendar updated on there as well.
2: Cool. So it's Twitter and the handle is, again?
0: Neuronarratives.
2: Great. And then just to Google your name, Sarah O'Donoghue and BBC Social yep. Networks. Yeah. Okay.
1: So so one last question. So, so what's your hope? What's your ultimate hope for your research uh, during your PhD?
0: Um, I just hope that... I can continue making the connections that, that I've made um, maybe maybe meet some of the, the people that, that I've met um, online and in, in person and do some sort of reu- uh, reunion, is that what you would even call it? I don't know in COVID times um, for my research um, I just hope that it will have an impact that it that it will matter, um, and even if even if it, it inspires one or two undergraduate students, say to, to 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 find the thesis somehow and say, you know what, this needs to happen in in our department. We need to start focusing on cognitive difference, and we need to start, or, or, or even if even if I could I could change something on the the more practical level as well. Um, I know that my supervisor does keep me up up to date. Um, Tim Tim tells me that, you know, um, some of the things that I'm doing and some of the things that I've raised, you know, he will bring up issues for, for, for neurodiversity in, in universities and stuff. So I feel like it's 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 an attainable goal and if I just keep mm-hmm. trying my best and if I keep, you know, just keep being passionate and, and, and keep working hard, then um, I'll get to inspire as many people as possible.
1: Thanks, Serena. So this is a Serena O'Donnell Hugh, uh, and we have a really interesting, it's an interesting discussion. Thanks so much, and thanks, Ian.
2: No, oh, thank you. Thanks for thanks, Serena. It's been really interesting to hear yeah, thank all you your both. work and your research and everything else you've been doing.
1: Okay,
0: great. Thank you. Bye. Bye.